As we look in your word this morning, Father, we ask that your spirit would be opening our heart as well as our mind to understand the things you want to say to each one of us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, thank you. That was the first one here, and I forgot it. Uh, McElroy's, are, home, are you guys on for this week? This is the first week. Okay. So yes to the McElroy's and Hunts and Kotzers. I don't remember what we had talked. We're taking a break. Okay. That's summertime too, isn't it, John? Absolutely. Okay, so McElroy's home group is on this week. We are back in the book of Ruth. We're in chapter 2. Before we get into there, let me tell you, having looked up the uh, word good in Webster's Dictionary, good has about a dozen definitions, which Stan is fascinated by already. However, one of them are in the moral... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is not as good a word as serendipitous. It's not as interesting, but it's a good word, good is. In the moral sense, good is listed in Webster's as excellent, virtuous, pious, kind, benevolent, generous, sympathetic, well-behaved, dutiful, and proper. That's a lot of good words there to characterize the term good. The reason I bring that up before we start is as we go through chapter 2, we'll actually be finishing up chapter 2, verses 4 on, but as we go through this chapter, I want you to think of that word and how it applies to the hero of our story, Mr. Boaz. I'm convinced that chapter 2 especially is not only meant to introduce Boaz to us as the readers or anyone who hears this story. Boaz is a great example. He's an example of a good man, good in the highest sense. And Boaz is an example in other ways in the books to come. But, but this sets the stage for us to understand what kind of a person this is by showing us in deed and in truth and in word that Boaz is an example of a godly, good, righteous man. So think about that as we work our way through chapter 2. We already went through the first three verses of this chapter, and just to touch base on that, verse 1 in chapter 2 actually introduced Boaz, though he wasn't part of the story yet. And it's clear that God wants us to know this guy is going to become important. And so as the Jewish hearers heard this for the first time too, God says, by the way, there's this guy named Boaz, which is a good clue that he's going to come up in the story. He'll be an important figure. And if you remember in verse 1, it says that he was a... Uh, the terms vary here, but a mighty man, a wealthy man, he had social standing, he had economic standing, he was a landholder, he was an important person in the community, and he was also related to Naomi, at least through marriage to Elimelech, her deceased husband. Starting at verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, and sorry to set the stage again here, Ruth, you remember in the first three verses, Ruth has gone to glean, in the fields. And the verse said she just so happened to end up in the field of Boaz, not knowing where she was going or what God had in store, just wanting to find a field to glean some, some grain, the spare grain that's left on the ground, to glean some grain and take that home for she and Naomi. And in this field, uh, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. And this I don't necessarily like the English translations. You know, we transliterate some of these words. The word Lord here is Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It's the name he gave himself to Moses and said, 
This is the name by which I'll make myself known to Israel, Yahweh. So I love this, and I love Boaz's introduction. And the first time he opens his mouth, God comes out. God is the first thing out of his mouth. When he sees his reapers, he says, May Yahweh be with you. May Yahweh be with you. Now, you know, in Jewish circles, then and now, typically an introduction or uh, uh, if you were departing, you would say shalom, which is a good term, and it means peace or wellness or wholeness. You know, that's your thought towards that person. And shalom would have been adequate. Boaz takes that a step further. You know, God is the God of all shalom, all peace. And Boaz says, may Yahweh, may the God of Israel, may the, may the God who's intervened in Israel's history and put us in the land and blessed us, may Yahweh be with you. I like this guy as soon as he opens his mouth. May Yahweh be with you. Also, contrast this. You remember in the first five verses of the book? We said in a book that's full of God, the first five verses were absent, any mention of God. When Elimelech is making these important life-changing decisions and we're kind of questioning the wisdom of that, leaving the land, going to Moab, marrying foreign wives, etc. But you remember we said God was absent. Well, when Boaz is introduced on the scene, God is part of Boaz's introduction. Boaz is a godly man. He loves God, and as we'll see in this story, he loves people. He's a great example. There's a phrase that I thought of when I was studying through this, and... Uh, I've used this on a flyer before for my business, and it's, it says this, the last test of a gentleman, or we could say of a good man, the way he treats those who are of absolutely no use to him. A gentleman, the way he treats those who are of absolutely no use to him. Now, Boaz's servants are useful, clearly. They're reaping his grain. They're useful. <clears throat> but they're his underlings, socially and economically. But when he sees them, may Yahweh be with you, and we'll see, though, that his goodness or his benevolence goes beyond those who can be of help to him to someone that, as far as he's concerned, can help him in no way whatsoever. Verse 5, it says, Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while, no doubt taking a rest or a break from the work. Now, Boaz, you imagine Bethlehem, that area, it's still fairly small. It'd be like a small town in Kansas, maybe. He knows all his reapers. He probably knows everyone in the area of Bethlehem. Here's a stranger in the field. Now, he might have just been curious, and curiosity would be enough to ask who is that, but We'll see later, Boaz's interest goes beyond mere curiosity. He's interested in this person and in their welfare, as the story will continue to show us. So at verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, turns from the servants, goes to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Don't go to glean in another field. Furthermore, don't go from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and follow after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you or not to harm you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Now, this all shows Boaz's goodness and specifically his kindness. Now, remember, to him, Ruth is a stranger. He asks, now he knows who she is. 
And so his immediate response is to, is first he tells the servants, don't harm her and you let her stay along in the fields and glean. But then he says to her, hey, you're safe in my fields with my maids. So stick here. Don't, don't go searching for other greener pastures, greener fields to, to glean in. Stay here. I've told my servants they're not going to harm you in any way. You stay here. You'll be safe. You'll be able to glean. And you can even come and, and drink with my servants also. He wasn't just kind. He was courteous. You know, it was enough. The law provided that they had to allow the poor and the strangers to glean. The law provided that. It certainly did not require that he come and say, by the way, I'll take care of you. I'll make sure everything's okay and come. And here's where you can get the water during the heat of the day. So he didn't just go along with the letter of the law, so to speak, but it was the spirit of the law. He was providing for someone else who could be of no use to him as far as he was concerned at this point. He's kind and he's courteous. Well, verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner or a stranger? Now her response, if you remember in, in the opening of this chapter, she actually hoped to find someone who would favor her. That is someone who would allow her to glean and that, a place that she would be protected. And she has, but she's still stunned at his kindness. And so she asks him, why are you being this good to me? I love verses 11 and 12. Boaz answered and said to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, as I see it in this text, it says two reasons that Boaz was specifically motivated to be kind to Ruth. And the first one is that Ruth herself had been kind to Naomi. The first thing he hears about Ruth is her kindness to his relative, Naomi. So he says, it's been fully reported to me. Your kindness to Naomi you left your father, everything you knew, and you came to be a support to your mother-in-law, even though your own husband had died. I've heard all about your kindness to Naomi. So her kindness motivated Boaz to kindness. It doesn't say he wouldn't be kind anyway, but this at least was a specific motivation for him towards her. Her kindness sparked more kindness in Boaz. And in fact, in this story, kindness is one of the key terms that will come up <clears throat> in the next couple of chapters. There's a Hebrew word, it's pronounced either hesed or kesed, and it means faithful love, loyal love, kindness. That comes up in this story, and it's one of the key themes of the story. Ruth had been kind to Naomi. Boaz hears about it. This sparks Boaz to be kind to Ruth. This kindness sparks Ruth to be kind to Boaz again later, He'll say your later kindness is better than your first in chapter 3. And God's kindness is displayed to all through this. And it's just interesting to me, or it's a good reminder, that kindness breeds or produces kindness. Goodness towards someone else produces goodness. You know, in Galatians it says, don't be deceived. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. And Ruth had sown kindness. So she's not just reaping barley and wheat later. 
she's reaping kindness as well. And it's like we talked about links in the chain before about the way things happen that we can't see beforehand, but that God has these links in the chain. Well, this kindness is that same way that you see in this story and you'll see in your own life at times that one kindness leads to another. It's just a great reminder that it's no small thing to be kind to someone else and God blesses that. And the kindness that you show to others, generally, you'll receive back from God generally and from others specifically. So one of the specific motivations from Boaz was he knew Ruth had shown kindness at her expense. And so he shows kindness to her at his expense. The second specific motivation commented on here is that Boaz knew Ruth had thrown herself on his God for provision. I mean, she is an example of faith. You think of the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Ruth is an example of that kind of reckless, abandoning faith, someone trusting God and throwing themselves on him for their provision. He said, I understand you've come under the wings of the God of Israel. You're trusting my God. And that elicited this motive on his part to bless her because he appreciated this response of faith in a pagan towards her God. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus says of the centurion, I haven't found this kind of faith even in Israel. And remember, our whole story takes place in the dark, gloomy days of the judges in Israel. This is when it was specifically tough to find a faithful person, a person who trusted or followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. They were few and far between. And here into Boaz's world steps this Gentile who has cast herself on Israel's God, and he, he has affection, he loves this quality in Ruth, that she's trusting his God. And so that's, that's one of his two key motivations to want to be a part of God's provision for her. It's that she was trusting God, and he wanted to bless her for doing so. I think it's true for you and I, too. You'll hear stories about uh, people who've done one thing or another because they understood God was leading in that direction. It was costing them something. You know what? Most of the time our response is we're thrilled to see faith in action, and we want to bless them if we're able to do it, whether that's prayer or financially or whatever it is. And that's what Boaz was doing here. So kindness was repaid with kindness, and faith, was rewarded here. Her faith in his God, he appreciated. Verse 13, she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me or spoken to my heart and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. So I'm a foreigner, someone you could easily have looked down on. At the mealtime, I assume this is lunch, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. His kindness, his goodness to her continues here. You know, I'm assuming they've worked all through the morning and now it's lunchtime and it's break time. Now you can imagine most of the time these are his servants that he pays working with him that are reaping the field. And it was normal for him to provide their meal, their noonday meal. 
And so he's doing that here. And uh, the parched grain, typically they would take some of this grain, some of it's still green, they would roast it, and that's what they were eating here. Now Ruth and other gleaners might have been left to eat their own sack lunch in the corner of the field, so to speak, where they were working. But Boaz goes up to her and says, come over and join us. And then he himself serves her. He gives her enough to be satisfied and more. He welcomes her into his circle, so to speak. If you've ever been a stranger, if you've gone to a new school, or if you've joined a new team, I don't know, if you've moved to a new neighborhood, and you feel like the outsider, you know how appreciative you are when someone invites you into the group. And that's what he does here. You know, it was a big deal in the Eastern sphere or in that culture to eat a meal with someone else was in a sense to join their world and to be blessed by them. So Boaz doesn't just say, you can glean in my field, you can drink my water. When it's mealtime, he invites her into his circle and then he himself, the Lord Master, serves her her lunch. This is a really, uh, it's a great picture of condescension and stooping low to serve someone again at this juncture that he assumes is of no use to him whatsoever, no benefit. He doesn't know that he's part of a bigger story. You know, remember for him, this is just another day in the life. He got up that morning like a thousand other mornings, and he went to the field to the harvest like he had a hundred other times. Remember, he's at least least middle-aged. He may be middle-aged or older. Stan, he may be older than you and I. But this is just another day to him. And one of those days that he gets up to check on his fields, there's a stranger in the field. He didn't know this was coming, and he didn't know that God's plan was intersecting with his life. But he's showing kindness to a stranger who's shown kindness and who's trusted his God. And he welcomes her into his world, into his circle, and serves her, feeds her. I think to me this is a little reminiscent both of Jesus welcoming Gentiles into his kingdom, as well as the Lord's Supper, where the Lord not only provides the supper, but then he comes up and serves you and I. So his kindness continues. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and don't insult her. And also you shall purposefully pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. His kindness continues. A third time, he tells his servants, now don't rebuke her, she's here at my command, don't mess with her, don't give her any trouble. And beyond that, as you're going along harvesting, I want you to take some handfuls, and on purpose I want you to drop them in the field in front of her where she'll find them. Now you can imagine Ruth, she probably, her day was probably going okay so far, but now she comes in the afternoon and she's finding these big handfuls of grain, not the little bitty grains you know, pick up individually, handfuls. She probably thinks Boaz's reapers are inept. Look at all the stuff they're leaving behind. Gosh, they're forgetting it all over the place. But he goes beyond the kindness of allowing her to to glean and, and providing even lunch even. Now he goes to his servants out of her hearing, hey, don't don't mess with her. And beyond that, you drop stuff right in her path where she'll find it. So openly Openly, Boaz had told her, stay in the field, drink my water, eat my food, join my circle, and stay in my fields where you'll be safe and protected. 
That's openly. Secretly, he tells his servants, not only don't mess with her, but you drop all this stuff for her so she can find her. You know, and it might have been okay if he just said, hey, I'll just give you this grain. But that might not have been prudent at this point or wise. So he makes things as easy on her, though, as he can by dropping these handfuls on purpose. So he blessed her openly, but he also took care of her needs secretly. Uh, it's interesting, you know, in your life and mine, a lot of times you'll look at elements in your life and you'll know God's blessed me in such and such a way, a good job or whatever, a happy life. I don't know what it'd be, Brad. Whatever, you'd say God's blessed me. But, you know, the truth is generally God is blessing us in ways we don't think of as his blessing. He is dropping those handfuls on purpose in front of us. And sometimes we, like, we walk up and we find this handful dropped on purpose and we think, it's a happy coincidence, it's lucky, it's chance. You remember we said before, there is no such thing as luck. There is no chance in God's economy. God is sovereignly at work, not only openly in the scenes, but secretly behind the scenes to accomplish his will. And like Boaz, he's dropping for you and I those handfuls on purpose that we stumble along. We don't try and bring them to pass. That's God's blessing on us openly sometimes, secretly other times. Nothing just happens by chance with an omnipotent and omniscient God. Well, at verse 17, <clears throat> he's blessed her secretly. She thinks he has inept field hands. She gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. I can't remember what the measurement is. But this ephah, we're to understand this is a lot of grain. This is more grain than you gleaned in a day. And you remember at the end of the day when the evening breeze would come up, they'd get to the top of the hill, they'd beat out. Sometimes they'd have an ox and a sledge that would go over this grain. They'd throw it up in the air. The chaff would blow off with the wind and the grain would drop behind. So she's beaten out her grain, a large measure of grain. She took it, verse 18, up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She took it and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. She's brought the gleanings, and she's brought the leftovers from lunch. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? I suspect she's stunned at the amount of food Ruth has brought home. May he who took notice of you be blessed. And you'll see Naomi's heart turning here. Do you remember when Naomi has mentioned God's name before? It's not a curse, but it's that... It's that God who's done me wrong. It's that God who sent me out full and brought me home empty. And when she says, when she doesn't know who it is, whose field Ruth has been in, she says, may he be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the, man of, or excuse me, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord. By the way, this is the first time Naomi has named God's name in blessing. So her heart is turning here as God provides for her. <clears throat> he has not withdrawn his kindness to the living, to you and I, or to the dead, his relatives who had preceded him in death. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. And of course, this is a handful on purpose to tell us something more is coming with this close relative in the future. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, lest others fall upon you in another field. 
Remember we said women were vulnerable, more vulnerable, frankly, than uh, our violent culture is today. And to have the protection of someone specifically, this was no small thing. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest. Remember, this, this portion of the story starts at the beginning of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So she's got months of provision set out. Boaz is guaranteed that they'll have enough food to provide for their need for months to come. Now, I want to look back on this chapter because I want to talk about Boaz as a portrait of a good or a godly man. I've got four things here. You know, the first thing out of his lips, it was his words. His words declare that he's a godly man, that he's a good man, that God is at the center of his life. May Yahweh be with you. And his servants reply the same to him. He loves God and he loves others, as we've seen, his provision. And this will be demonstrated even further as the story goes along. But that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus said the two great commandments are love God with all your heart and love others. And Boaz is a clear demonstration of that. He loves God and he loves others. The second thing is that he acts to bless and care for others who, as far as he knows, has no ability to be of any use to him whatsoever. He is serving others selflessly. Out of his expense account, so to speak, he is blessing someone else. That sounds like Jesus' words about it's more blessed to give than to receive. He's a great, a sterling example of that as well. One of the things that strikes me too is we know from a comment he'll make later that he's at least middle-aged. He's probably a little past middle-aged. <clears throat> but it strikes me that the goodness he's displaying in our story did not come on him in a day. You know, when God's plan intersects his life, it intersects his life at the point of which his character has been formed day by day and decision by decision all the way along. You remember for him, this is one more day and it's one more act of kindness. He didn't become kind so he could enter our story. He was a kind man. He didn't become godly so God could insert him into the story. He was a godly man. And you know, even if Boaz had never become a story, a portion of, of this important story, he still would have been known by God as this godly, good man. You know, if you think about it, Boaz is written down, and we can read about him, but <clears throat> there are hundreds and thousands of good Christians throughout the history of the church and before the church that the world didn't know, or if the world knew, despised. Boaz had become a good man, whether anyone was looking or not, so that when God's story intersects his life, his character is formed. Day by day and decision by decision, these qualities, the, the qualities of goodness, kindness, sympathy, uh, you name it, that Webster's list already, that was already in him because that's the kind of man he'd become over time. And you know, it's so important Many of us get the grand scheme that we're going to become this great thing. We're going to become this great person, whatever that looks like. <clears throat> but you know, the truth is, you and I become what we're doing today. And to, to today becomes tomorrow, and we, come, we become the person we are tomorrow. And, and those things add up over time. So in God's economy, he, he does not pole vault anyone 
from this one status to another status. Sometimes his plan takes us by surprise and he moves us, but the person that we are, we don't suddenly change overnight. Now, when we repent and believe, when we become a Christian, we become something that we weren't before, and that's a day and night difference. But our character develops over time. It's little bit by little bit. So Boaz, when we see him in our story introduced here, this is the man that he's become. But this happened one day at a time, one decision at a time. It's just a great reminder to any of us, and I think especially young people, younger people, what kind of a person do you want to be in 20 years or in 40 years? That's what you need to be practicing today. You won't become in a moment something you're not now. It'll happen day by day and decision by decision. And the last thing, and certainly not the least, is he asked God's blessing on Ruth. May, may the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come, bless you, keep you, provide for you. He, in a sense, prayed for her. But he didn't stop there, did he? He then, he prayed for her, that God would bless her, and then he became a channel for God to bless her. Have you ever said to someone, <clears throat> I'll pray for you because it's a nice thing to say? And maybe you do, and maybe you don't. But you say it because it's a nice thing to say. And it gets you temporarily off the hook. <clears throat> but it's not necessarily enough sometimes, is it? Or you commiserate with them or whatever. You know, not always, not always, but often we have the ability not just to pray for someone or not just to commiserate with them, but we have the ability to be part of God's blessing for them. And that's what Boaz was. His goodness did not end at a nice phrase to Ruth, to this foreigner. His goodness included words, but it went past words, past a blessing or prayer, to action. Listen to James 2, 15 and 16. We could say this about Boaz. Boaz is a sterling example of this. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What use is that? Don't even speak. It's vain. Words on the air. Don't bother. In fact, this text in James 2 is the passage that says, If your faith isn't demonstrated, how valuable is it really? And in this situation, Boaz could have just said, you can glean in the field. He went past what the law required to bless someone he was asking God to bless. He didn't just pray for her. He didn't just say nice words. He acted. And he became a part of God's provision for Ruth. And sometimes, not always, you and I have the ability not just to pray. If you say you'll pray, by the way, do it. Or not just to commiserate or say a nice phrase to a person in need, but to go beyond that and be a part of what God wants to bless them with. Financially, emotionally, housing, food. I mean, you name it. It can be 101 different things. It varies with anyone's life and situation. But when you pray for that person or when you're with that person, don't just think, what should I pray, Lord? Ask the Lord, Lord, do you have something here for me to do? Do you want me to be a part of your provision for them as well? 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
John's not saying don't love in word, but don't love just in word. Let your words be the front end and let your actions follow. I am reminded, you know, the Marine phrase, the Marines are looking for a few good men. Few good men. Boaz is a portrait of a good man, of a righteous man, of a godly man. And men, the world is in need of a few good men. And ladies, the world is in need of a few good ladies. Good men like Boaz, good Ruth, or good women like Ruth. Listen to this. Solomon, wisest man in the world, said, related to looking for wise, good, godly people. He said this in Ecclesiastes 7. I have found one among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. In other words, don't be offended, ladies. In other words, I looked for a wise man, a good man. I found one in a thousand, and a good woman was even harder to find than that. Not that women aren't good. I looked for a good or a wise man. I could only find one in a thousand, and a good woman was rarer still. The world needs good men and good women. They are rare commodities. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Lots of people declare their own goodness, Solomon says in Proverbs, but who can really find someone who is in fact trustworthy, good, godly? Hard to find. Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife, who can find? Her worth is far above jewels. The thought here, remember that value, worth, is built into supply, isn't it? The rarer something is, the more valuable it is. In Proverbs it says, an excellent wife, who can find? An excellent wife is a rarity. That's the implication. She is valuable because she is so hard to come by. If you're a wife, this should be your goal, to be like Ruth, to be one of those rare treasures, a godly wife, a good woman. If you're a husband or a man in general, we should have a goal to be like Boaz. And, you know, by the way, this story is very familiar to me and I loved it, but I've never appreciated Boaz as much as I have this time studying through it. This portrait of him as a good man is just, he's become one of my heroes. He's not, an, he's not a warrior, is he? He's not defeating the Amalekites. He's not ruling on a throne. And history could have gone right over his life without a speed bump. But he's a hero in the Bible for simple character qualities like goodness and kindness. And listen to 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of Yahweh, this is a good memory verse, by the way, move to and fro, back and forth, throughout the world, the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Do you see the implication here again? You see, if the world was full of good men and women whose hearts were God's, his eyes wouldn't be going to and fro. They'd be easy to find. But his intention is to bless and support those who give him their heart, like Boaz and like Ruth. And it says he looks for us. And when he finds us, it's with intention to strongly support us. 
This was one of Marvin de Grasse's favorite verses. And when I think of our missionaries in India, this is the verse I think. May God strongly support them. May their hearts be His so that God can strongly support them. Boaz was that kind of man. God strongly supported him. And then he intersects Boaz's life with his plan, which we'll see more of, of course, in the rest of the story. But the world needs good men, and the world needs good women. Let me close with this example. There's a movie I highly recommend. It's called The Chosen. It's probably 20 to 25 years old now. Robbie Benson is one of the key characters in it. I'm going to, Maximilian Schell is also in it and a well-known actor whose name escapes me right now. Anyway, great story, basically around the uh, era just following World War II. And there's a Hasidic Jewish rabbi who leads his small community, I believe it's in New York, and uh, kind of an imposing figure, certainly. He has a son, and not just a son. His son is brilliant beyond words. He has a memory that's beyond definition. He can remember anything and everything. And the father has treated his son in a way that appears quite harsh all through his growing up years. He doesn't speak to him. He'll only speak to him through a mediator. He doesn't have a lot to do with him. And you wonder what the motivation of this father is. Have you seen it, Stan? Uh, is it Heim Pollock or Potok? That's it. And I don't, know how the, I don't know how this reads at the end of the book, but in the end of the movie, the rabbi calls Daniel, his son, and Daniel's friend, whose name escapes me, and he sits them down in his parlor. I told a joke one time, an example. This has nothing to do with anything. I was teaching in St. Joe, and I gave some example. And the example was Winston Churchill and his wife, and they use pet names for each other. You guys heard it here. And you know I'm up there and I'm telling the story, and frankly, the pet names totally escaped me. And I knew I was in trouble, but I had to plow through. And so I just, I used the example and I kept going. And I'm having lunch with Tom later, and he says, Mike, I'm tearing my hair out. What are their pet names? (laughs) I blew it. I got myself into a corner and I couldn't get out. Oh, well. Anyway, this guy's name I don't remember. I watched this this morning. But anyway, his friend is there because the dad always speaks through a mediator. So Daniel, the son, is there. His friend is there. And the rabbi tells his friend's, excuse me, Daniel's friend, sorry, I'm blowing this, tells him, he said, I realized when my son was four years old, he has this unique intellect. And he says, I thought, God, what am I going to do with my son? He's got a head, but he needs a heart. What will I do for him? How can I raise him to become a good man? And so he subjected his son to silence and to suffering and to loneliness so that his intellectually gifted son would develop a heart and a soul and goodness and kindness instead of just his intellect. And at this point in the story or in the movie, the dad knows that his son, who was groomed to follow dad in the footsteps of the rabbi and lead the Jewish community, he knows his son has already made a decision to become a psychologist instead. And this is what he says. He says, become a psychologist already. You see, now I am not afraid. 
I have no fear because my Daniel is a sadich. He's a righteous man, a good man. And the world needs a righteous man. The world needs good men like Daniel and like Boaz and good women like Ruth. And in this really simple story, this day-to-day story, a little harvest, a little travel here and back, it's not a great story, it's a short story. You see these shining examples of the kind of people God is looking for that he can strongly support. And you know, this is within reach of any one of us. You don't have to be written in the Bible. Any one of us can aspire to the goodness, the kind of goodness displayed by Boaz and by Ruth. Let's pray. Lord, I'm blown away at times by how simple you make life. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Father, as simple as that is, it requires all that we are and all we have. Lord, help us to gladly identify with your son Jesus in his death as we're called to in Romans so that that life which is his, that new life, can be manifested through us and in us. And Lord, I know in this story that Boaz is more than a portrait of a good man, Lord. He's a portrait of a redeemer. He's a portrait of your son. And Father, we want to grow up to look like our Savior and our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, your uniquely begotten Son. We know this is not only a story about kindness and goodness, Father, but it's a story about redemption. And you've redeemed us. You've called us as your own. You've given us your nature. And Lord, I pray that the fruit of your nature, the fruit of your spirit, not just love, joy, peace, but kindness and goodness would be ours in full measure. Father, help us today to be the kind of people we want to be tomorrow. Help us to make decisions today and tomorrow so that we become the people you want us to be. Might the world be sprinkled more abundantly with the likes of Ruth and Boaz in us, Lord. Might the world see the goodness and the kindness of your Son displayed in us, his followers. In Jesus' name, amen.